You're listening to the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, Nathan Gilmore, Danny Anderson, and Michael Farmer. There's a great, big, beautiful tomorrow, shining at the end of every day. There's a great, big, beautiful tomorrow, and tomorrow's just a dream away. Man has a dream, and that's the start. He follows his dream with mind and heart, and when it becomes a reality, it's a dream come true for you and me. So there's a great Hi, and welcome to episode 122.3, I think, of the Christian Humanist Podcast. My name is Michael Farmer. I'm an assistant professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. I'm your host for today. Nathan Gilmore is... Oh, he told me. I think he's doing something with his family, and he could not be here. So it's just me and our other co-host, Danny Anderson, Dr. Danny Anderson, who is a... Assistant Professor of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. Is that correct? Did I get everything right? Uh, I, as far as I heard. So many colleges and city <laughs> names. and. Yeah, I, I always get your college wrong, so you, I'm sure owed me one at least. So. Well, I think you do it on purpose. <laughs> I, I really wish they would change the name to St. Bonaducci. <laughs> anyway, um, before we get into the topic at hand, we do have a couple of pieces of listener feedback here. I'll, I'll read the first one, and then we'll, I'll let uh, Danny read the second one. This is from Harrison Eyre. He says, Dear Humanists, for the exclamation point, thank you so much for your intellectually stimulating podcast. I'm a Catholic deacon who will, God willing, be ordained a Catholic priest this summer. Congratulations. I'm currently in my last years of studies doing my MDiv synthesis on mystery and my MTH on the philosophical method of Oracle Blondel's action. I have no idea what that means. <laughs> a friend of mine pointed me to your podcast through Facebook, and I have been a devoted listener ever since. I do a lot of driving to my pastoral placement, so you all are my car companions on a weekly basis. Just a couple of notes on tradition. First, with regards to the relationship between tradition and betrayal, I believe it, it is of a biblical root. Ju- Judas handed over Jesus to the Jewish authorities. I can't remember if it's a church father or St. Paul who picks up on this. Secondly, for Catholics, and this is the part I found really interesting, tradition is too loaded a term. The first issue is its ossification amongst the so-called traditionalists. The second is the strong misuse of the word tradition, which I found even you guys fell into. Too often it is treated in a documentary way rather than living. It is not to say that documents are not part of tradition, but it is, in fact, much more rooted in Christology. Which Did you know that, Danny? I did not know what that. I did not know that. Um, yeah. yeah. So I, I'm sorry for that. We got that wrong. And he, although, he, he yeah, go ahead. my memory of that, and, and please, I, maybe I shouldn't speak from memory, but um, I, I thought that we had sort of opened up the possibility of tradition being something more lively. Uh, that's just sort of the way I sort of recall it. I but. remember we, we tried very hard not to treat it as this dead object that you either pledged your allegiance to or you walked away from completely. I, I would have certainly meant to do that if I didn't do it. That that is actually I, I sort of agree. And you know what, Nathan? Now that, or I'm sorry, Michael. Now that we're talking about this, uh, Nathan did ask me 
uh, he wanted to address this too when he comes back. So maybe we can revisit this uh, email again next week. Um, and now that we're talking about it, I remember having a brief conversation about with him about it because I think he has something to add to it too. Okay, so Harrison, you will have that to look forward to next week when Nathan's back. But in the meantime, I'm sorry if we misrepresented the Catholic approach to tradition. I, I, I you know, always like to learn. Now he does have here a, 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 some more information on this. We have with Vatican II the emergence of an unfortunately neglected document, Dea Verbum. Now, I don't speak Latin, so if that's terribly pronounced, I'm very, very sorry. There we, get the great, there we get the great sense of tradition. Revelation for the Catholic is Jesus Christ. He is the fullest revelation of the Father to the world. The church is the place where this revelation is deposited, but it is living rather than documentary or noetic. This find much, finds much of its justification in the thought of John Henry Newman. Anyway, tradition becomes something living rather than ossified and is a constant reflection on the living revelation of Jesus Christ amongst the total body of the church. This plays out with scripture, too. It becomes a living word of the capital W word, which constantly manifests the living Christ to the church and to the world. No wonder the Catholics got along with Karl Barth so much, because that sounds very Barthian. I like it. I like it, too. I I think it's great stuff. Anyway, he says, please keep up the great work. So thank you for uh, writing in, Harrison, and, and Nathan will respond to, uh, to, to our misuse of tradition uh, next week. Danny, why don't you read the email from Monica? Yes, I have an email from Monica Moss, uh, which Nathan – or Michael, excuse me. Do you want to use your joke there again, um, actually, about her name? Oh yeah, it sounds. I said I said it sounded like a uh, Marvel comic superheroine. Yes, <laughs> which is very like true. And that is a compliment, Monica. Yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, so thanks so much for the show. She writes, I stumbled across upon this podcast in my search for some road trip listening a year ago, and have been catching up on episodes ever since. As a recent graduate, it's an interesting way to fill in some gaps from all the classes I didn't take at university. I particularly enjoyed the episode on the Brothers Karamazov, as well as those pertaining to philosophy. I don't remember which episode it uh, was referenced in, musicals, she, she wonders, but I appreciated the Carousel of Progress shout-out. Growing up near Orlando, I frequented the parks much too often, and that has become my favorite ride in Magic Kingdom. It's too cheesy not to love and never has a line. Monica, I hope you enjoy the uh, the theme music for this episode, which I did for you. <laughs> oh, good Lord. Um, and I agree with her. I, I went through that thing twice, as did my children. They both loved that yeah, thing. Yeah, that, that, that ride is the best. Yeah. It is such a – I mean, the, the point at which progress stops for yep. that ride is just so fascinating. I, and I think it's just it's just endlessly entertaining. Well, and they complicated, as it were, textual history of the Carousel of Progress where, where the song changes over time. So – Yes. Originally, the song is the one they have now. It's a great big. There's a great big beautiful tomorrow. Yeah. And, and, but then it changes to one called "Today is the best day of your life" because <laughs> I forget who sponsor. I think it's GE sponsors it, and they want oh. something that's more like you have a great life now, and you don't have to wait for tomorrow to buy a microwave. <laughs> <laughs> and they change it back after GE pulls their sponsorship or something. I don't know. Yes, it's uh, absolutely fascinating. I love that ride too, and the lack of lines is great too. Uh, I recently moved to Mozambique, not me, this is Monica speaking, and internet here is pricey. 
I am approaching the end of the episodes I downloaded before coming and notice that the file size of this podcast is two to four times larger than that of comparable podcasts. Is there any way to compress the episodes before uploading them? I want to, what do you think about that, Michael? Yes, there is a way to do that. And I will, uh, I will do that from now on. I do apologize to Monica and our other listeners who have trouble downloading it because it's so big. So our topic for today is the annual meeting of the Modern Language Association, which is the big professional organization for English teachers. And the reason it's our topic is because Danny's absence from the show last week is because he was at the MLA conference in Chicago. So Danny's going to give us a full report for something (laughs) approaching it. Was, Was this your first time in MLA, Danny? It was actually the first time I, I got to go. I did not. I am not a big shot, and I did not get an NMLA interview when I was on the job market, and so uh, I did not go before. So this was a, a very uh, uh, curious experience for me this time. Yeah, we should say that the biggest schools often do their interviews in MLA because then they can do them in a hotel room and do one after another, after another, after another. I've heard it's terrible. Mm. You end up sitting on a bed a lot of times, I've heard. Yes, I have, there are lots of uh, of nightmares. A friend of mine who did get an interview, uh, he told me that there's also another sort of kind of cattle call room where there's just tables next to each other and people kind of line up and go in there and interview. And he saw people outside of that room like uh, vomiting into trash cans. It's such Goodness. a like nerve-wracking experience. And so, yeah, they, it's uh, for some reason one of the worst moments of most people's lives. I, I have heard that. I mean, m- maybe they're just trying to scare you off from the profession altogether. <laughs> I, there, there are worse ways to do it, I suppose. Yeah. So you you didn't have to go through that pain. You went to actually present a paper, and do you want to talk about that paper for a minute? Oh, sure. <laughs> I should, did you listen to last week's episode, Danny? I haven't had a chance to. I'm oh, because we made a joke about it. Uh, Nathan <laughs> talked about it, and then we said that the, the it was it was basically the sort of paper we'd make up if we were making up a fake paper for you. <laughs> and in fact, there's there's a contest now to do ones for me and Nathan and David. All right. As well, so but go ahead yep. and, and talk about your talk about your paper. Sure, this is the paper that probably is kind of it is does sort of work as sort of the template for all my interest being wound into one thing, and uh, so I did a uh, paper I, for a panel called uh, Jewish Monsters. Uh, I did a paper on the movie An American Werewolf in London, uh, which was happens to be my favorite movie. Uh, it's both funny and scary and and uh, fraught with interest, and and uh, I. It originally was a grad school seminar paper I wrote for a class on the horror film. And I've always felt like it was the best thing I ever did in grad school, just I probably because I was so passionate about the subject. And, and I, I don't, don't know that I've known anything so well as that movie that I was actually writing about. And, uh, and yet, because of the nature of the topic, it is very kind of on the fringes of anything that anybody else is interested in. There's uh, really no... There's never been any sort of logical place for it to go. And so I saw this call for papers uh, called Jewish Monsters. And I didn't even really see that it was an MLA panel when I applied to it. I just sort of applied to it and then uh, was accepted into this MLA panel. And uh, I delivered a paper about uh, night uh, visions of uh, assimilation nightmares in uh, in this uh, particular werewolf movie. And so uh, that that was what I uh, I presented on. So. So it was, an, it was an older paper that you revamped a little bit. Yes. Um, it was a paper I wrote, uh, I don't know, a few years ago in grad school, maybe three or four years ago. And, uh, yeah, so it was fun. I did uh, one of the strangest uh, 
conference papers I've ever delivered because at the end of the paper, I had a few people coming up asking me questions and, and it was pretty well received. Uh, I was very happy that, that people seemed interested in it. But one guy comes up to me ranting about circumcision, <laughs> yelling at me, oh, oh man, <laughs> yelling at me. <laughs> you can't talk about circumcision like that, I don't think. And, and so it you, was, you talked uh, about it positively or negatively? I talked about it not necessarily negatively or positively. Just I made a claim that it was a Jewish practice that was adopted by kind of larger the larger American culture. That, and, that, uh, that, that seems like it would be indisputable. Okay. <laughs> and apparently I – and perhaps as a footnote, I should have mentioned this, but uh, it's not so much because of the Jewishness of the practice, but there are sort of hygienic reasons for this. And by not talking about that, I, I uh, undermined circumcision in some way. But I decided to say, you know, you're right, and I should definitely think about that more. Um, which, is, that was... which is always the answer at a, at a <laughs> conference presentation. I think we, yes. we have an episode on conferences, and, and one of the phenomena we talk about is – this blowhard in the crowd gets up during the Q&A and talks for 15 minutes about some topic of his own interest that has only a dovetailing relevance to what you've just uh, what you've yes. just presented and that that's what you got to say oh yes. i never saw it that way i'll have to do some research on that <laughs> well that didn't happen largely this was a very uh, nicely fairly nicely attended panel and and everyone was very respectful in the crowd and it was it was quite uh, a really good exchange afterwards and this guy had been like wiggling in his seat trying to get in i'm glad he didn't because i don't know how i would have handled that question publicly but uh, privately it was just just awkward. Publicly, it could have been horrifying. So, so he was pro-circumcision and felt like you were anti-circumcision. I, I don't know that I came across as anti-circumcision. This was just sort of a statement of fact, um, as, as I perceived it. Um, and I, I don't know that he was pro-circumcision, honestly. From the, I think it was the way that my information was presented didn't cover all the nuance of circumcision. And so this is clearly someone who's thought about foreskins a lot more than me. So. Well, you know, I mean, the the MLA is an organization with a fair number of cranks in it, right? There's, I don't want to attach that label to this gentleman based on this one conversation, but well, I yeah, it's a true statement that you make. Yeah, yeah. Maybe, maybe, <laughs> yeah. I, maybe I wasn't any more clear on that than you were on foreskins. <laughs> yes. So, had you been to any of the like regional MLA conferences? My first conference actually was a, a regional, a Midwest MLA. Yeah, uh, that's the one I went to in November. Yeah. yeah, and it was in Chicago as well. It happened to be when I went to it. And uh, yeah, um, I have gone to that. I don't know what your question – what's your follow-up question? Yeah, what's the difference? Like like, how do they uh, – um, is, is the bigger one just bigger or is the whole tone different? I felt like the tone was much more different. I felt the one I went to was much kind of – much more sort of specialized and and far more academically like focused. This was much more about research and and there's much more of a kind of a social dynamic going on at the big one in my perception of it. And and I felt like it was richer for that. I I felt like the first one was very kind of technical and just felt like I was going through a meat grinder of some sort. Mm-hmm. And and this one I felt like I was actually engaged in the profession, which could be the my position in the profession has changed obviously since when i was a master student until now right, right. but uh hopefully yeah, your, first, your first conference as a master student's a pretty pretty strange experience anyway but yeah. to have your first conference be a regional mla conference i can't imagine 
yeah. But I would have expected the big one to feel more like a meat grinder because, I mean, so many people there are going through – I mean, as you said, the worst the worst thing they'll ever go through professionally for many of them. Yes. Uh, I don't know what to say. It, part of it was the – I've been around long enough, I guess, that I, I know people like in out in the profession. And so I, it was – seeing people that I haven't seen for a while and, and catching up with them. And, and then there was the fact that I, because my panel was very early in the morning on Friday, I was able to sort of do whatever I wanted the rest of the time. So I just went to things that I actually found interesting. And so it was, uh, it was much, um, I don't know, looser. I, I didn't, and all, almost entirely because I didn't have to interview for a job. I'm sure that yeah. if, if yeah. If I had that sort of pressure on me, it would have been uh, a much worse experience. But I really actually enjoyed myself. It, it's pretty bizarre that they have those – that it's the same thing. You know, that, that on the one hand, you have people presenting papers. On the other hand, you have people upstairs in the same building interviewing for jobs that they have a 10% chance of getting or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, it must be a very strange dynamic because I've only been to the regional one, and and there there aren't job interviews there, and so everybody in the building is there for that, except for the people who were there for the roller derby tournament. <laughs> but, but everybody who's there for the MLA is there to present or to hear a paper. No, nobody's there. N- nobody's there to try to get a job directly. Right, right at the regional, right? Yeah. Um, no, that's true. Although I did, I was so impressed. One friend of mine who I known, he's a grad student in another institution, but we knew common people and we've come become friends over the years. Uh, he was there to interview for two or three jobs. I think he had two or three interviews and he was presenting a paper at the same time. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and I was like, Holy cow, Jorge, that's, that's quite impressive. Um, like, but, uh, but he was, he was very, uh, that's the, his personality. As if you needed a, another reason to be nervous when you're presenting one of those papers. Right. Yeah, one of your interviewers could yeah, actually yeah. be in the uh, audience. Which you, you figure they would be, right? Because if they I've, know you're if they know you're interviewing and they know you're presenting a paper, wouldn't you go sh- try to see the people who are interviewing? I didn't ask him if they had, but I would. I can't imagine I wouldn't. Although you know, you also hear these stories about those interviews where the the people are so burned out because they're interviewing fifteen people, yeah, right in a row, and they're they're so burned out they don't want to do anything but retire to the hotel bar. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. Which I know is not an option for you. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> I saw some friend of yours on on Facebook yeah. ask you to go get a beer, and you had to. <laughs> about coffee? <laughs> this was that guy. This oh. was the same guy. Yeah. Well, yeah, see, he, he said... needed the beer. The coffee. The coffee would have made him more anxious. Yeah, my response. It was. It was a, I was talking to my wife about that. It's sort of a strange rhetorical moment because I had to also have aim my answer towards potential Emmanuel like viewers. And so right. I, I, so I was like, I'll have a coffee, but let's definitely get together. Yes. Yeah, sure. yeah, fa- yeah. Facebook, Facebook is, is weird when you have to navigate that. that <laughs> right. Um, right. So, so you've done the regional MLA, you've done the national, what, what other conferences have you done? Um, I've gone to the ALA, the American literary or literature association a couple times. Uh, Mellis, the multi-ethnic literatures of the United States, um, once or twice, I think. Uh, there's this Jewish American Holocaust Lit conference I go to. Christianity and Lit. Uh, uh, trying to think. So of you're, you're a pro is what you're telling me. I've been to several. Um, more than I probably really needed to. I've always enjoyed them. I don't I, know. I, it, I, I don't I don't not enjoy them. 
Yeah, I, I I like listening to other papers and and I like meeting new people. And so to me, I've I've never found it to be a a horrible professional obligation. I've always my, kind of enjoyed it. My problem with them, especially with the MLA, I now Christianity and Lit is the exception because the the Christianity and Lit conference I went to. I, I've never met a nicer group of people. They, yeah. In fact, I met someone who turned me down for a job, and and like she was so apologetic, and you know, it was, it was just it was a nice place, and and there right. was no kind of professional one-upsmanship. It doesn't hurt that most people there were graduate students, and I had a job. Right. <laughs> uh, but but um, at the MLA in November, I just felt I I have never felt less cool than than I did in that hotel my entire life. And, oh. and and that's that's most conferences I go to, and and that that may be a personality issue. You you may just be more comfortable with yourself than I am with myself. But <laughs> well, I wouldn't say that. I've always, I mean, everyone has the imposter syndrome. We call it right about someday I'm going to say something, and everyone's going to know I've been faking my way through the profession all this time. And uh, I've never have gotten over that on some level. <laughs> it's probably but, good that you haven't. <laughs> but I also have never. I've always had trouble fully understanding papers at conferences. Oh, uh, yeah. Like, and so this was the – I went to one panel that was highly theoretical, and I could actually follow it for the first time like I, ever. I, 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 had, really, I had that experience <laughs> too at the regional one, and I, yeah. I thought, oh, my, I'm, an, I'm an adult now. I, I get it. I can yes. – I've, I've read – and I, I could go up to them afterwards and say, hey, you should look at this book too. Yeah. Oh, it, that, that, that does feel good. Yeah, yeah, that was that was nice, and so now I, I, I guess I'm at an age, Michael, where I realize that I'm not cool, and I never will be, and I'm okay with that, and so I, I have no, I have no sort of self uh, pity about it anymore, and I don't try to hide the fact. So well, I have big, go. giant black glasses on my face, and take it or leave it. So. Oh, the giant black glasses are cool now. That's <laughs> true. Now, the reason I asked how many conferences you've done was not so, not so you could show off or you could do that. I, I am interested if, if presenting at um, national MLA is, is different somehow from presenting at those other conferences. Um, you know, gosh, that's a good question. I felt – how am I going to say this? I, would, I don't know that I can answer the question for everyone um, because so many of the people who went to my panel I had seen at other conferences because of the subject matter. Like when I do the sort of Jewish stuff, you sort of see the same faces a lot. So in many cases, it sort of felt like a bit of a reunion. Um, and so it didn't feel like I was speaking to a whole new group of scholars. Uh, and so I, I did feel more comfortable than I ever in my imagination had dreamed I would. Um, although I have to say also, that's probably because there's a, a wonderful woman, Martha Cutter, uh, from uh, University of Connecticut. She was actually a, um, my, one of my professors at Kent State when I was an undergrad. And she was actually the person who talked me into going to grad school. And, and so we've, always, we've kept in touch all these years. And, and, and I happened to bump into her right as I was walking into my panel. And we had wow. this really lovely conversation. And I felt like that kind of brought me down to earth and, and made me uh, whatever nerves I had were gone. Um, so I had forgotten about that. And I probably shouldn't underplay the importance of just humanity <laughs> in this sorts of thing. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I, it really didn't feel that different, except when you have the uh, the exhibition hall and you see like publishers and books and that sort of thing. So. Which the regional one didn't have. Yeah, I mean they they had a few books, but nothing like I've heard they have at the national one. 
Oh, good lord! Yeah. Did you, did you buy anything? Um, no, I grabbed a couple of freebies that they were given out, um, but I didn't buy anything. I did try and talk. Uh, I think it's uh, who, somebody reissued. It's like the New York Review of Books or New York somebody like that had reissued Lionel Trilling's Liberal Imagination. Yeah, that's the New York Review of Books. And, and so I, they had a table up, and I saw that book, and I asked them if they were going to do any more, and they didn't think so. And they asked me if I suggested one. I said, oh, you should do Beyond Culture. And so I told them, if this actually gets reissued, I'll feel like a very powerful person. So um, Maybe yeah. they'll ask you to write for the New York Review of Books. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm sure I'll be on their list. Yeah. <laughs> you should just email them. Yeah. Do, you, do you need anybody to... <laughs> <laughs> My mom would have me do something like that. I guess. Yeah, yeah. You know, parents just don't understand. <laughs> yeah. To use a reference, Nathan would get. <laughs> yeah. So you, you were there for two or three days. I was there. Oh gosh, Thursday, and I left Saturday. Yeah. Do you feel obligated to go to as many panels as you could, or did you get out of the hotel? Um. Yeah, there were three that I wanted to go to, uh, and so beyond that I was I didn't feel obligated and I did sort of just kind of wander around have coffee with old friends and that sort of thing so I, I did sort of break away from the academic um, site a little bit yeah I mean you know the nice thing about the giant conferences is there's sure to be something that interests you yeah yeah there were really some good panels I went of course to the Philip Roth uh, I don't know. It was the Roth Society that put this on, but uh, they had a a really great panel about Roth and masculinity, and it was it was quite fascinating actually, and it gave me a lot of ideas. But um, so there, when I was definitely going to make that, and then there was one put on by the Society for Critical Exchange, which is a kind of a theory heavy group that had this really terrific panel about academia in the kind of post-political moment, supposedly, of theory. And uh, it was really, like, thought-provoking and, and, uh, and almost inspirational at the end. It was, it was quite good. Hmm. Do you notice any trends among the other papers? Um, well, I, the ones you went to or the ones you didn't? I mean, Yeah, I, I did. Well, so I went to, well, the Roth one is sort of, you know, a single author society. It's going to be sort of focused in the way that it always is. Um, but this panel was trying to kind of call into question the assumptions of a single author society and, and to try and uh, uh, sort of break up the, 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 I don't know, hegemony, I suppose, of, of these, this sorts of study and, uh, and, and blow him out into sort of more interesting and broader topics. And so I did feel like there was a move to try and complicate things that are becoming settled uh, in, in, in the profession. Um, and, and I felt like the the critical exchange society uh, paper, panel I went to d- did that as well. It was it was really trying to call into question certain assumptions. And I honestly wonder. And this one was particularly focused on if it's okay if I talk a little bit about that panel. Oh, absolutely. And I can't remember the names of the people. I, I tried to jot them down, but I, I guess I didn't do it very, very well. Um, but uh, it was about sort of academia and its role in society, basically, uh, in this supposedly post-political, post-theory moment. And I can't help but think that it, there was some acknowledgement inherent of the sort of – there was like a counter-MLA going on at the same time. Have you been reading about this? Um, I, I knew I knew that the MLA was under question this year. Yes. I mean, there's been more national press about this conference than I can ever remember about an MLA conference. Yes, and and I felt like that kind of energized a lot of the people in the papers there that I saw, and I feel like there is some acknowledgement that we are, as a profession, becoming a bit settled and a bit kind of, oh, 
there is a sense that the people on the top are sort of happily occupying a position that is crushing people below them, both in the profession and outside of it. And, and I felt like this with this sort of, I forget what it's called, the alternative MLA or counter MLA. There's a, a conference that goes on in the same city and I cannot remember the name of it. Um, but, uh, and I did feel like within the MLA, there are now voices acknowledging this and we really need to think about structural changes to our profession. And, and I think it's, uh, it was fascinating to hear actually. Do you think it'll actually result in structural changes to the profession or do you think it's going to be one of those things where the larger entity just kind of swallows the protest by incorporating it? And this is, that was the subject of many of the papers in this panel was the, is the, 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 the way that dissent gets actually co-opted by the establishment. And, um, and so there was, particularly uh, a paper calling into question whether higher education is now subservient to neoconservative complaints against tenure and the academia or neoliberal complaints complaints against it. And, and I think that for a long time we've been fighting a cultural war without realizing that we've been participating in the very kind of economic structures that are, were, uh, and, that are actually undermining us more than the cultural war. <laughs> and I think that that's what the uh, uh, really kind of heart of those four papers of that panel uh, was. And I think that that was really fascinating to listen to. I, I jotted down quite a few notes about that because it was so so uh, thought-provoking for me personally. But, what, um, kind of, what kind of suggestions did they, did they make for the future of the academy? Other well, than stop fighting this culture war and think about your own... There was an interesting arc. The The first couple of papers were very much like we need to retrench in theory. Uh, sort of, I got, that's sort of the, uh, that's sort of the, uh, uh, the overall impression I, I, I received from those, uh, that we, there is a sense that we have to kind of depend on the material conditions that we are, that are, we're fighting against ostensibly. And, and then towards the end, like the last paper particularly, it, it kind of, step back from all of that. And he pointedly asked the question, have we been as a profession too successful at making everybody respect us as a quote unquote job? Okay. Uh, and so for so many years, has Stanley fish won. <laughs> yes. Yeah, is a good question, right? Yes. Um, like we've been sort of ranting, like we do work hard and, and we do earn our money because we're doing this service and that sort of thing. And, and so we've been trying so hard to gain respect, uh, by, equating ourselves with uh, monetary and economic work and value that what we've kind of perhaps what we should do, I think is the implication of his paper is think of as ourselves as something a little transcendent from that system. And that was sort of the first moment in that panel that I think recognized the role of transcendence. And, I, I and, like that. It's very, it's Heideggerian in its way because Heidegger talks about when people say philosophy is useless, right? You're not supposed to say, well, it does all. It does this and that, and it prepares you for the. You know, you're not supposed to do that. You're supposed to say, "Yeah, it's useless," but it makes use of you. And maybe that's what we should be saying about right. the humanities. Although, you know, that's just going to involve our jobs getting cut. I suspect. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, I mean, that's sort of the the danger, right? And, and I, but for a, I mean, we work at both at Christian colleges, um, and I've kind of come to peace, and and actually, I, I enjoy the fact that I'm, we're off the grid of the profession to some degree. We're at the fringes of the profession, quote-unquote. Mm -hmm. Although um, you, get to, you get to present an MLA. 
Well, yeah, <laughs> but that's by choice. I don't have to, right? Yeah. And so we're we're sort of uh, margin on the margins of the profession, and I've come to some sort of peace about that myself. And and I felt like what he was saying uh, is that I shouldn't only feel peace about that. Is that this is actually the way to 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 save the profession is to think of it as marginal and and not quote unquote professional, but something that's uh, after something higher than just pure economic value. And I really find myself this week back in my classes talking all the time in all my classes about how I don't care if they make money when they get out of there. The, a college degree is not about making money. It's about making you a better person. So I feel like my kind of liberal humanism has been sort of retrenched in some ways <laughs> after, this, after this panel. And, and, and then when I say liberal humanism, I mean in the sort of Arnoldian sense of it. I mean, so, this, this, is what, this, is what a con, I'm, I'm, this is what the conferences were originally designed to do, which is spiritually energize the people who go to them, give them new ideas, give them new routes to conduct research before they became big business, right? Before, right. before it became, you have to go here if you want to get a job. Right. Right. And I think that's the this panel for me was sort of the centerpiece of the whole thing because it it brought that right into to, to the foregrounds. And fortunately, it was highly theoretical. And for the first time, I was able to sort of follow that sort of um, discourse like or orally kind of. I have always had trouble hearing theories oh, it's, given it's, papers. <laughs> yeah. I, for our listeners who have not been to these conferences, following a highly theoretical paper for 15 minutes, you, you deserve some sort of medal for it. it yes. It's so difficult. And then, you know, rinse and repeat. Yes, because <laughs> you if you go to pa- if you go to panels all day, which I don't recommend, if you go to panels all day, you're probably hearing twenty papers, twenty five papers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There were four just in this one that I saw, and there were three I think in the one I delivered. And yeah, so yeah, it's uh, it's it can be kind of grueling, but I felt like the, all that theory was put to really good use in the in the the cycle of those four papers, and it was it was really. Um, kind of inspirational in a weird way. I, I found it to be uh, affirming for what I've sort of had a sense of as going in, but now I sort of have more language to describe it. So. That's good because, I mean, the profession is at least publicly in trouble. Yes. I, how many polemics do you have to read uh, about the the fate of the humanities and MOOCs and all this stuff going on and, and, and UCLA getting rid of Chaucer classes and, and you know what I mean? And it's so it's sort of, it can be really depressing if you don't think of yourselves, if you don't think of yourself as doing something that's more important than economics. And so, yeah. And the nice thing about going when you already have a job you like is you don't feel like you're in competition with everybody else there. Right. That's true. I can't, I've, I cannot imagine going there. Unemployed, you know, I, yeah. oh, you would just hate everybody else in the in the building, wouldn't you? I, I I would think that the professional rivalry would would have to just overcome you on some level. Yeah, for me, I would just be so full of anxiety that yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I am even when I go for not job stuff because I'm always full of anxiety, especially when I have to deal with a bunch of people I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, I, I can't imagine. I I didn't apply anywhere that interviewed MLA when I applied to work years ago mm-hmm. and I was, you know, glad for it. I never had to do a conference interview. Yeah. I, I can't I've... believe people still do them. I mean, why not just do it over the phone or over Skype? Why, why fly your entire English department to Chicago? This is, I think some of what's at stake in the issues brought up in that panel is like how much, how beholden are we to these sort of 
of economic structures. Why can't we interview people outside of this economic structure? Why does why does it have to cost? It cost me one hundred and ninety dollars to register for the conference. Yeah, okay? yeah, it's it's it's, it's obscene. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, so I, the the cost of MLA is is crazy. There was an article. Ah, uh, gosh. Was in, I don't remember. I read it yesterday. I put it on my Facebook page um, about the cost of a granola bar uh, at these uh, hotels. Yeah. And it was $6.25. I literally saw this myself before I read this article for a granola bar. Okay? And, and, and you could walk half a block outside the hotel and, and buy it for a third of that price? Yes. Yeah, there's a 7-Eleven across the street practically from that place. And, yeah, and, and it's just – and I, remember I saw Michael Berube um, – quoted in that article saying, well, you know, we have no control over that with the hotels charge. Um, and I saw one of the comments under that said, yes, but you do have the opportunity to have the conference in a place that isn't so doggone expensive. Right? I mean, because they always have it at the nicest hotel in town. <laughs> yes, in the nicest towns, right? Um, and so, yeah, there are like these traditions that this is the way that the profession gains prestige in uh-huh. some ways. And I think maybe we need to worry less about prestige. Uh, as a profession. Now, I'm fortunately in a position that I can do that easily because I have no prestige in my, <laughs> in my, in my profession. So it's easy for me to say, I suppose. But uh, I do think that it's really uh, perhaps what we do at the small little Christian liberal arts level is a model for how to kind of uh, rescue the profession from some of its excesses. Yeah, and it wouldn't just have to be the small Christian colleges. I mean, small colleges anywhere that couldn't afford that kind of – well, I was going to say a word that I can't say on the uh, podcast. But <laughs> that kind of ornament. Right. You know, I mean, so maybe we should all band together. Well, yeah. I mean, I actually think the counter-MLA thing is kind of a great idea. Yeah, apparently it's it's like a free for anybody to go to and the food is free and all this sort of thing. I don't know how they get funding for all this. Because but... where, where does the money go? With MLA, well, just the, I, there, just the structure of the organization itself. Yeah, I mean, there were you know all these tweets. I think I follow something called Left Visions. I think on on Twitter, and I think they were retweeting certain things about the MLA that about Rosemary Fields travel funds and all this thing. But uh, well, you I think know, Gayatri Spivak apparently will only fly first class. <laughs> that's ironic, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, when I heard that, I stopped teaching Spivak. Yeah, that's hilarious. Well, I so I, there was significant. I thought my hotel room was quite affordable for where it was in well, Chicago. You weren't in the main building then. No, I was in one of the MLA buildings though, okay. um, and I was in the DoubleTree actually, and it was a very nice hotel, real close to both of the main locations, and and, uh, and I got a, a really reasonable rate on that. And so I'm sure some of it goes to paying that sort of discounted room rate. Um, some of it goes to arranging, you know, plen- I, like John Sales was there to receive some sort of thing, and uh, the film director John Sales, and oh. so I'm sure that people like that get uh, compensated for for. So, what so they, they pay do. him to give him an award. I, well, I don't know that he was getting an award, but there's some sort of retrospective about oh, okay. that. They were showing like eight men out and all these other things. So um, I didn't get to see any of this, but but yeah. So I'm sure that. I have no idea about the finances of it. They make it an event, and that costs some money. Yeah, right? it's true. And, and you know, you want a little bit of glamour, right? Because right. how often do any of us ever get glamour? There's, there's no less glamorous profession than English teacher. 
Right. Well, that's, yeah, not, what, that's not true either. I'm sorry. I'm sorry to those of, those of you who are listening who are in less glamorous professions. Yeah, but it is not a glamorous profession. Those coal miners out there, right? It so, is. Yeah. It is. It is oh, fun so. to pretend that we're movie stars for a weekend. Yeah, and what passes as glamorous for us is uh, is kind of funny when you think about it. But well, oh. yeah, it's sad. Yeah, it's sad more than funny. <laughs> <laughs> but I, uh, so I guess I've said two entirely different things. Like this event is ridiculous and excessive, and I enjoyed it very much. Of like course I, you did. I mean, so, of course you did. Of course, people enjoy ridiculous and excessive <laughs> things. Why they wouldn't have it if nobody enjoyed it? Right. Right. So, like, and I, some of that is the privileged position I was in to not have to find a job, of course. But uh, I just wonder if if everybody would enjoy it as much if they only had to pay a hundred dollars, you know? And it was in Albuquerque or someplace. You yeah, know what I'm saying? Albuquerque yeah. is supposed to be a very nice town. I hear they have good meth. They should make a TV show about yeah. that. <laughs> you got to be careful where in Albuquerque you have it, from my understanding. <laughs> But yeah. yeah, and they you're right that they only have it at the at the biggest most expensive cities. I remember it was at San Francisco a few years ago. It's been in Boston, Seattle, the Seattle. Year I, yeah. Uh, LA, I think, I, which was at least a southern city. It's also always in cold weather cities in the first week in January. And so like have it in Atlanta once. I to think. be fair, to be fair, it used to be the week right after Christmas. Right, that's true. Which is the only worst week I can think of to have it in the first week of January. Right, right. But, you know, they have to have it at a time when people aren't teaching. I get that. Right, right. And next year it's apparently in Vancouver. So Vancouver's not that cold, is it? It's on the ocean. I don't, I don't know. It's still – it's way far away from me down in Athens, Georgia. Yeah, so. well, it's international. <laughs> Chevin, <laughs> Omaha. Yes, that's right. Cleveland, my beloved Cleveland, Ohio. We both, have both of which are perfectly there. fine cities that don't cost an arm and a leg to go to. Exactly. Um, but Chicago was fun, and uh, and I can't say that I didn't enjoy myself. So um, so what are you going to do, right? Right. I, I probably won't be going back to the NMLA anytime soon. This was sort of a once-in-a-decade opportunity for me, at least. And so um, both in terms of the the paper I was delivering and, and the feasibility of getting there, but you guys should uh, get the paper published. Um, I don't know. I, I should look into it. I, I really think it's a good paper, <laughs> but I don't know who's, who would be interested in it. And so I'd have to, maybe I'll, after we get off the air, I'll, I'll pick your brain about that. I don't know. So, you know, well, um, here's the part I'm sure everybody's listening to. Tell us what sort of ridiculous venal things you saw going on at the hotel. I didn't see anything. <sighs> like, uh, so, um, I but I know about the Craigslist ads and all these sorts of things. Uh, I don't know. Oh yeah, because office hours has apparently been ruined for everybody. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, there was also somebody who wanted to sort of he put an ad out for some sort of role playing exercise <laughs> about the job interview situation, like in a hotel room, and 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 he was okay if the young woman was going to be either the interviewer or the interviewee, <laughs> and it was it made quite the rounds as sort of a, a sign of. English professors are all crazy people, right? And so, like, people who want to believe that sort of thing had some real strong evidence there. Um, it, it was really quite disgusting. But I, I saw nothing like that going on. Um, and so, I mean, I don't know when I would have. I mean, I just sort of after – I would go back to my room and watch television. But You, you but, didn't uh, overhear anybody saying anything particularly stupid or um, – no, because uh, I mean, usually you throw a rock in that place, a place like that, and you'll hit a terrible cliche of an English professor. <laughs> well, there was that, yeah, but yeah. I didn't, 
I didn't see anybody do it. I, maybe it's just I'm immune to it. I'm just sort of jaded and hardened about it now. So I, I mean, I just didn't even notice it. But uh, yeah, I did see one guy. I, this, see, I'm wearing a suit and everything. I, I got this suit for the job market and I've never had to. I mean, I might as well wear it to these things. So I'm trying to dress nice. And I see this one guy, younger guy than me. He's got these magnificent Matthew Arnold sideburns rocking. And uh-huh. I, why can't I be that guy? I, I would love to show up at the MLA with gigantic Matthew Arnold sideburns. You, you, you have to have such nerve, though. You have to not care what people think about you. This is my point. I should not care what people think about me. I, I, should, I can't do it. I can't either. My, well, my wife won't let me. She thinks I look like a redneck when I do that. But Because but, uh, I have tried in the past. So. I was on the uh, elevator at MMLA, and this, this one woman – She's clear with the conference because she had her badge on, but she she came in and uh, she was carrying. I mean, this is a three day conference. She's carrying at least six bags from Whole Foods, <laughs> and the other conference attendee in the elevator uh, complained the entire elevator ride up that uh, that there was no um, bus service to Whole Foods. <laughs> I thought, man, you guys, uh, you guys don't care how you come off, do you? <laughs> Yeah, that's funny. Like, no, I, it get bad? It wasn't. I'm, maybe, maybe their room had a kitchenette. My room certainly did not. So, uh, yeah. no, I, I, I made room, made use of the burrito shop down the street for yeah. my dinner. Oh, yeah, that was it. So, yeah. I mean, that's kind of the fun part about this conference is you get to walk because they are held in the nicest part of the city, so you you can feel safe walking. And, and yeah, I'd never seen Milwaukee before, which is where the the Midwest one was. Oh wow! I heard it's nice. Actually. It is nice. It's like a little Chicago. It's, mm. and, you know, it's the old architecture. They have a very nice river walk, and there are pictures on my Facebook if you yeah. or anybody else is interested. Well, check it out. Anyway, anything we've left out about uh, about MLA? Anything um, you wanted to say about it? Gosh, I I can't think of anything. Um, uh, it's it's all holding together for everybody who cares about that sort of thing. No, I no. the center held after all. <laughs> <laughs> so far, so good. Yeah, we'll see. I, it will be interesting to see in terms of the kind of cultural development over the next few years in the profession to see if there is a sense of, of re- trying to focus on what the humanities are for, uh, you know, really and, and, and really keep uh, not Which to has been an we, open question since the 80s, right? Sure. But and not that we've forgotten it, but but to really make that sort of what's more driving us and, and to really rethink uh, how that should define what we do and value as a department. And I'm not saying we should go back to the great books uh, paradigms of, of, you know, this UCLA situation with Chaucer and Milton, all that sort of thing. But, um, but I do think that uh, we need to ask ourselves as a profession and this, I try to do this as a teacher in my little institution in Georgia. Uh, like, what is it that I can best do for a student who's not an English major? Like, is, yeah, like, like what, what, do, what does literature do for somebody uh, who is just going to get a job uh, in the economic world? Like, how can we help them mm-hmm. on the way? And, and I feel like uh, this conference was a way to kind of really refocus uh, way to refocus me on that on that question. And that would actually probably be a good episode for us. Hmm. I'll let you run that one though. All right. What did I just say? I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, so. so if you've got questions about MLA or want to say something, if you, if you were there and, and wished you'd met Danny Anderson, uh, you can email us at thechristianhumanist at gmail dot com. Or uh, we probably won't have show notes up for this because there won't be any kind of outline because this was such a uh, 
such a unstructured chat, but uh, usually you can find us at ChristianHumanist.org and of course our Facebook page. Danny, what are we talking about next week when Nathan's coming back? We are going to be talking about, uh, with the great Dr. Gilmore, the 10-year anniversary, uh, or 20-year, excuse me, anniversary of the great film Pulp Fiction. I always forget it was 1994. I always think it was 96. Mm, no, it was 94, the year that I stopped watching the Oscars because Forrest Gump won everything. So. Forrest Gump really is a turd of a movie, isn't it? <laughs> well, you know me and the baby boomers, and that movie just... Oh, yeah, it's so self-congratulatory. <laughs> and I love Tom... I mean, everybody loves Tom Hanks. I like him in The Burbs. <laughs> the Money Pit. <laughs> oh. Anyway, so you, uh, you, you guys have that to look forward to. Uh, in the meantime, for Danny Anderson and the absent, Nathan Gilmore, this is Michael Farmer saying, let your sins be strong and let your faith be stronger.